Tonight's reading will be from Lamentations 4, verses 17 through 22. Double second this time. <laughs> All the while, our eyes were failing. As we looked in vain for assistance, we watched from our towers for a nation that refused to help. Our steps were closely followed so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our time ran out. Our end had come. Those who chased us were swifter than eagles in the sky. They relentlessly pursued us over the mountains and ambushed us in the wilderness. The Lord's anointed, the breath of our life was captured in their traps. We had said about him, we will live under his protection among the nations. So rejoice and be glad, daughter of Edom, you resident of the land of Oz. Yet the cup will pass to you as well. You will get drunk and expose yourself. Daughter, Zion, your punishment is complete. He will not lengthen your exile, but he will punish your iniquity, daughter of Edom, and will expose your sins. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord. Just before service, um, uh, Suzanne Hassel emailed, uh, and Suzanne has uh, been fighting cancer now for a couple of years, and last week she was here uh, with a face protector on, uh, a mask to protect her from germs, and she said, you know, I probably shouldn't be here, but this is important to me as my chemotherapy. She says, I need to be with you, I need to take the sacrament, and I need you to pray for me. And afterwards, she came up for prayer, and she wrote, of course, it's easier to be the giver, but recently, it has been such a privilege to be the recipient of lament and love from our church body. And I I think what happened last week during some prayer for her as the people praying just went into lament and just cried out to God about her suffering. And then she says, last Wednesday, Sandy, Turner, and Caleb prayed that my blood platelets would grow stronger. They doubled in the next two days. To my medical team's surprise, I will be starting the trial two days from now. (laughs) So that's, how about that, yes. I thought that was so powerful because it, it, it talks about the power, I think, that can be unlocked in lament. You know, I think there's a misconception that lament is just being discouraged or down. And that really is not the goal of lament. The goal of lament is to move towards hope, to cry out to God, to see him move in glory and power like he did in Suzanne's life. You know, we're almost done. We're in the fourth poem of the five lament poems. And it's important to remember that at the center of the book, just like the center of a labyrinth, is this wonderful declaration. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. 
So even though God is kind of on the margins of this book, even though there's uh, kind of a lot of discouraging raw talk and anger in this book, remember, it's like a labyrinth, and it's working its way towards hope. That's why we lament. Now, this fourth poem, uh, which again was written after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and the people of Israel were taken across the desert and stuck in refugee camps, uh, there were five poems that Jeremiah or, or someone close to him wrote in the middle of that. And the reason why 2,600 years later we have those five poems is somebody said, write that down and keep it because we're going to need to say it again. I think that's very, very important as we think about what it means to be a Christian. You know, it's not the best PR for God. You know, if, if I were writing a book and I just wanted to advertise the good life you can have with God, I would have kept this out. But the authors of Scripture and the wise men and women that collected it knew that life with God was not always easy and sometimes very difficult, and they wanted to honor that kind of experience. If the Bible is anything, the Bible is realistic. You know, every once in a while, people will come along and say, there's this new book out about God, and, 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 it's, and it's against him, and it talks about why, you're, why, why we're an atheist and why God has done bad things. And have you read it? Have you read it? And, and now I'm at the point where I say, I don't really need to read those books the best arguments are in the Bible. <laughs> they've, they've included everything you could say against God already in the Bible. They're not afraid of arguing and wondering and questioning. The Bible already advanced and thought about all the questions. So this fourth poem is also an acrostic. You can't see it in the English, but each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew language starts a stanza. The, the pace and the tone is different. There's less emotion. You get the feeling that, that the, the writer has become exhausted and a little bit hopeless, but he's still moving towards hope. The first 16 verses, the narrator speaks, and then the community comes after him. I thought the first two lines were significant. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Well, what are the holy stones? The stones from the tabernacle, the stones from the priests, ephod, the stones that decorated the worship, that drew you into the presence of God, the stones that were to be there for all eternity. Now they're just scattered across the rubble of the streets of Jerusalem. And this poem picks this theme up again and again of contrasting the great glory that they once had with the state that they are presently in. And these are some tough lines. And, and this is a tough, a tough part of life. It's hard sometimes to acknowledge that, that maybe there was a season that you enjoyed better than the one that you're in now. It's hard sometimes to think that maybe a season of great growth and expansion has passed, and now we're in a season perhaps of diminishment and loss. 
Those are not things we like to acknowledge. We don't like to talk about failure and negativity, guilt, powerlessness, loss, death. But the wisdom of the Bible is that it knows that we have to talk about these things if we are to move towards hope. I was talking with a young person recently, and they were just real honest, and they just said, you know, one of the things I really want in life is I'd really like a life partner. I'd like to move on. I've been pure. I've been faithful. I've uh, trusted God. And now I go on Facebook, and everybody talks about how, how patient they've been, and now all their dreams are coming true. And this person's gotten married, and this person's having a baby, and this person's moving, and this person's in a house, and what about me? What about me? I'm tired of being patient. You know, I, I was talking to another a person recently who has been working like crazy to look for a, for a job, and, you know, the way it's supposed to go is... I lost this job, and God, you know how it ends, and God gave me a better one. Glory be his name, right? So we'll have her share an offering. You know who never shares that offering? I lost a great job that I'd trained for all my life, and now no matter how hard I try, I can't get back into the marketplace. We don't like those stories, but they're part of life, and God is with us there as well. You know, I think one of the reasons that we don't lament and that we don't like to talk about these things is that we think that things have to be epic that we need to have great, huge struggles. And, and, and I, bet, I bet you've said this, I've said this. If you know Suzanne at all, if anybody's a saint, this is a saint. I've sat with her many times as she's faced the darkest hours, and I always come away encouraged and filled with joy, and she's winding up ministering to me, and I watch this woman go through cancer, and I think this is about as Christ-like as anything I've ever seen. And then when I have a little struggle, I, well, I can't bring that up to God. Look, look what she's doing. The practice of lament encourages us to name our disappointments, whatever they are. I'll name one to you. And even as I share this with you, I think, what pathetic whining, you big baby. I'm going to do it just because it's Lent. I hurt my back about a year ago. I was training for a long-distance swim. And... Uh, it's never really come back. And I've gone to chiropractors and doctors and all, all this crazy stuff and do all these silly exercises. Spent half my life on my back doing different things. And uh, it's not bad enough to, to talk about much. But I realized today coming in that I was really discouraged because I didn't know if I could go train in the morning because I was having a little bit of pain. And I found myself thinking, is this, is this what the rest of your life is going to be like physically? One system after another shutting down? <laughs> is that kind of, whoa, I'm 55. <laughs> this could get ugly by the end. And I, I, 
And so this little voice said, you should lament that. I thought, oh, give me a break, God. There are people dying. And you know. He said, no, that's your reality. Name it. Name it. You got something you need to lament? Just a name. It's, I was talking with a friend this week, and, and they, they knew something vague was kind of swirling around and didn't quite know what to do with it. And, and uh, I, I said, have you written any kind of a lament on it? I've written three this Lent. Have you written a lament uh, for yourself? And they said, no, no. And I, I encouraged them to write four lines, just four lines. I left the room. An hour and 30 lines later, God had started his work. We just have this resistance to even opening the door. To I do. I don't want to do this. I can't wait for Easter. Duck donuts is one reason. But even more importantly, I'm tired of thinking about this. I don't want to live here. And we shouldn't live here. But we're going to live here for two more weeks. Well, the next few verses in chapter 4, the narrator takes us on a tour of broken Jerusalem. And one of the things that we notice is that he's not a reporter for NPR. He is not standing there detached saying 700 children are battling starvation today as famine ravages this region. The Red Cross is on the way. There's no flat line. This is emotional, vivid language. He says, the tongue of a nursing infant sticks to its mouth. Those who once feasted on delicacies perished in the streets. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the, by lack of the fruits of the field. So the language of grief is not the language of NPR. It's not the detached language of a correspondent. It's raw and vulnerable and jagged and messy and unedited, unfiltered. These young men that I I drive around in the summer to swimming, sometimes when I don't get in the car quick enough, they turn on the radio station of their choice, and they they like rap. And and as you might imagine, just from looking at me, that's not my first choice <laughs> is, is rap music, and I find it angry, aggressive, and the words offend me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, <laughs> and then I read Lamentations, and then I realized what rappers are doing. They're angry as you know what, and they're trying to get middle-aged white guy's attention. And they're scared, and they don't have anywhere to go, and so they use words I don't like. I think that's what's happening here. I think that's what's happening here. So if you have the courage to write a lament, and I go so far, a couple of you said, I don't have anything to lament over. Well, good, in one sense. And, oh, come on, in another sense. (laughs) We're human. It's hard out there. 
there may be something in your life that you might want to take a look at this Lent. And I would encourage you to just start writing. If there's just something floating around that feels kind of frustrating and painful, just start writing and the Spirit will write you. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for you. Now, it's true that you may not get all the way to hope. That may take a while. Sometimes it can take a long while. Elie Wiesel, the great poet who wrote the book Night after uh, Auschwitz, which is kind of a modern book of lamentations. That was a book where there was uh, almost no hope in it and a lot of raw grief. In 1997, he was asked to compose a prayer of lament for the Jewish holy days, and he did. And he starts like this. He says, where were you, God of kindness, in Auschwitz? What was going on in heaven at the celestial tribunal while your children were marked for humiliation, isolation, and death only because they were Jewish? And then he says that 50 years after the Holocaust, he's still haunted by these questions, but hope is starting to return. And he says this. He says, at one point in his prayer, I began wondering if I was unfair with you. After all, Auschwitz was conceived by men, implemented by men, staffed by men, and their aim was to destroy not only us, but you as well. Ought we not to think of your pain too? Watching your children suffer at the hands of your other children. Haven't you suffered? I love this, I love this line. We all should write it someday. Let us make up, master of the universe. It's unbearable to be divorced from you for so long. Hmm. Maybe that's a place that God could bring you this, this Lent. Maybe you've just been mad at him for so long. Maybe, maybe if you're honest about naming it, you could get to that point where you pray, let us make up, master of the universe. It's unbearable to be divorced from you for so long. Well, the last part of the prayer changes voice to the voice of the community. It, it, it moves into a communal lament. In verse 17, the, the pronoun shifts. Our eyes failed. Our pursuers were swifter. And, and, and the, it's like if we were acting it out as a play or a liturgy or a worship service, at this point the priest would step back and the whole community would come on stage as a chorus and start lamenting together and reciting together all the things that they have experienced. They dogged our steps so we could not walk on our streets and our end drew near and our days were numbered for our end had come. And this is where we move into kind of uncharted territory. We move into communal lament where we start lamenting over things we've done as a people of God. And there's a couple of lines in here that give you a hint of what they were lamenting for. Verse 17, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help, and our watching we watched for a nation which could not save us. What is he saying there? He's saying we're supposed to trust in God alone, but we did what everybody else in the region did. We made political alliances, and we trusted in them, and we bought into all the systems and structures of the day, and at the end of the day, it all failed us. That's what he's saying. We're sorry. 
We were, uh, today people talk about the Western captivity of the church. He's saying we've been captured by the culture. We became just like everybody else. We lost our distinctive path. We lost our unique witness, our sacramental identity among the nations, and we just started to do things like everybody else. We're sorry. And that's just something to, to think about as we are Christian in a post-Christian age, what are the ways that we have lost our way and have just embraced the power systems of the culture as a church? And I think after Easter, Easter we're going to look at 1 Peter because it's a great book about living in a, in a highly challenged and dark culture. I was thinking of this today and just asked the Lord, what, what are some ways? And I, I, I thought of some emails I'd gotten recently. Three reasons Easter visitors don't return. That was the tagline. Easter's coming. Getting people in your pews on Easter is not the challenge. The challenge is to get them to come back. The key is to avoid the major visitor don'ts, which we'll be discussing in our next online event. Space is limited. Register today. Another one, how to attract incredible talent to your organization. A third one, drones in church services. <laughs> Check out Jason Lee at Blank Church. The online campus pastor is using live drones during the service. This is my favorite. The redeemed by Christ hoodie. No one can understand the sacrifices Christ made for us. It's on us to make sure the sacrifice is not in vain. Spread the word. Wear this striking Christian hoodie with pride. True story. <laughs> I might have missed it, but Jesus' marketing plan went something like, follow me and die. <laughs> you know, it's a little different than, than um, redeemed in Christ hoodie. So, it just makes me wonder what ways we've been co-opted by the culture. The way the gospel's become just another product we're trying to sell. There's another line in here that gives you a sense of what they're asking forgiveness for. It talks about Jerusalem and, and how they were certain that it would never fail. The kings of the earth never believed, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Israel got to a point that they believed that they were just so special that nothing could harm them. And, of course, that was their downfall. And I just, I've been thinking about my pride and the pride of the church that I'm a part of. And I, I remembered something that I long ago hadn't thought of for a long time. Right after the, uh, the Berlin Wall fell, uh, almost a year later, I began to travel into Romania with an organization and do pastors' conferences. We were supposed to go over and train these pastors now that we're open up about how to be pastors. And I remember meeting uh, Pastor Relu, who had learned how to preach in his church with uh, government spies and try to figure out what he could say without getting a knock on the door in the middle of the night. And sometimes that happened. I remember being 
uh, with Sandy and John and Mona's house, and he told us about the many years he spent in Cuba uh, because he was uh, caught evangelizing. I remember Pastor Peter Dugalescu, who uh, played a significant role in the Velvet Revolution in Timisoara, and then went on to become a public figure in the parliament. And I went over to teach him how to pastor. At 29, with a master's from a Western seminary. This church had sent martyrs to the grave, had started underground seminaries, had evangelized at the cost of death, and we in the West went in to teach them how to pastor. And in some ways, it kind of fits the way we thought about theology. And I, I'm just, just being honest. You know, when we were in seminary, we read African theologians and Latin American theologians and liberal theologians and liberation theologians and feminist theologians and Asian theologians and black theologians. We never talked about white theologians. 99% of the books on my bookshelf are by white theologians. And as I was thinking about it, it's just our assumption was, well, we're looking, they all have perspectives on the truth. It's important to study them. The, the assumption was, and we have the truth, and so it's good to kind of see the other perspective. It never occurred that ours could be a perspective, too. And then the, this came home, and I'm glad wiser heads prevailed, but I originally had thought that this might be a good idea because you know, I wanted us to explore Lent, this lament. You know, we, we've been building this relationship with OBC, Overcoming Believers Church, a lot of us are involved in the Chain Center. It's going to be starting soon. A lot of us care about violence in the inner city and this kind of stuff. And so I had this idea that we would uh, ask OBC to have a lament service where we would go to the different places in the two miles around OBC where murders had been committed and that we would come together with our brothers and sisters and lament. And, and, a, and a couple people, and I never did get far enough to ask Daryl about that, but a couple people said, Doug, think about that for a minute. Okay, all these white people are on a bus um, getting off at spots where somebody's son's blood drained out. Maybe that's not the best way to start this. Maybe it needs to come from this. And I'm not saying that that was ill-intended, but I'm just saying how easy it is to just sort of think that you have the answer. Those are some of the things I've been thinking about when I think of corporate repentance. So what does that look like?
for us. Um, you know, we're, we're going to have a service on the Saturday night before Palm Sunday just to kind of start practicing this in our church life. But here's what I'm learning. The more we're going through this together and more I'm talking about this with you is I think it's okay to have an annual service or something like that. But the way lament really works is it, it comes up spontaneously from the people of God as they experience violence and disappointment and loss and, 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 and disaster. I think that's the purest form of a service like this. Like last winter, um, or a winter, two winters ago, when in December, Zavion Dobson was murdered. That night, Brandon Perry was murdered. Uh, three months later, Zavion's cousin, Juan Smith, was murdered. Some of you taught those boys. Some of you lived near those boys. I coached one of them on the swim team. That might have been an appropriate night for a lament service. Or we, since we don't all live in the same neighborhood and we all have different things that, that touch us, it, it might be that you're in your, in your neighborhood. Maybe there's a, an outbreak of violence or something, and maybe you just call people over to your house to lament. It can happen a lot of ways. I, I think the best way it happens is spontaneously. And, and again, the goal is hope. And that's what we see in the final verses of, of this poem. We get a little glimmer of hope in verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. You know, we're not all the way there, but that's the way this works sometimes. It's slow, it's hard, but he's moving. Lament is how we move through death towards hope. And, and I got a good example of this a couple weeks ago. I'm going to end with this. Um, I, I have been uh, in a small group of men uh, for 19 years. We've met together every Friday morning. And we took a, a retreat recently that I led. And I, I took an idea from Ray Kilarowski. Ray has put together a little white paper that talks about how God invites us to follow him in uh, the later years and kind of the adventure of faith and what it looks like in the, you know, the, the later years of life and how you discern that calling. And so I shared a little bit of the paper with the men and then I, we read a, a, the story of Abraham's calling and I, I sent them all out for an hour and I said, I want you to do a couple of things. That's the story, of course, where Abraham is called to leave his homeland and go to where God would send him, and he obeys. And I said, where is God calling you to leave, and where is God inviting you to go? What's it going to cost you? And then we spent the rest of the day, everybody shared what they got. Well, one guy in the group, and I asked him for permission to share this, he came into the retreat in a pretty hard place and uh, without a lot of hope and uh, kind of stuck, kind of believing that his best years were behind him and didn't really have a vision for the fourth quarter. And through the sharing and the scripture and the prayer, God first helped them name the lament. I was interested how different this retreat was than the first one we did almost 20 years ago. Uh, there was more lament. There was more lament. There was also hope. There was also hope. Rich hope. 
And uh, my friend um, wrote this poem. And I'll end with it. It's, uh, I asked him, he said, it is kind of a lament. It's called, I Am Abram. I am older now and passing through the colder solstice. I have been as green as the spring and on fire from the heat of summer's passions. I have turned and changed as the days have grown shorter. My seeds have fallen and become what I have sown. Now it is winter, but not yet at the end. Winter on a day when the sky is clear. And without the ornamentation of the other seasons, I can see life in the distance. Before the snow falls a final time, I am called to go to a new place, leaving behind what I have known, and come to love and hold as my own. I must forsake the foolishness and playthings of April, the ripe fullness of August, and the fears of the fall. I am to obey the voice that sends me and put aside the expectation of spring again, but carry in my heart its eternal promise. I walk with my brothers, for I cannot stand alone. And I go in faith, I go with courage, and I jump for joy. Let's pray.